All right, well, I know what some of you are thinking. Really? Habakkuk again? Right? I mean, it's kind of been a bit much, hasn't it? These, these, it's only three weeks, but um, still, some of us are probably feel like, how long is this series going to go on, right? Because we feel the weight of it. It's been, it's been a rough couple of, couple of weeks together as we've centered into this time. I mean, let's talk more about how broken our world is and how little we understand about what God is up to, right? Um, honestly, if, if you are newer here, um, you might be thinking at this point, what's wrong with this church, right? I mean, what a downer. Right? Especially, if you're, especially if you're not a Christian, you might, you might come and you might be thinking, man, um, leaving with, with more questions than, than answers, right? I mean, Habakkuk is a, is a rough place for us to rest. And I, I assure you, not, not every week here is this heavy. And yet we, we want to be a people who take this book seriously, even, even the places that make us uncomfortable, even the parts that, that hurt a little bit along the way, and we want to take our pain seriously. We don't want to make light of the things that we experience or, or the situations that we find ourselves or the things around in, in our world. And yet we all come to church for different reasons, don't we? Anybody familiar with uh, Brene Brown? Uh, she is a uh, research professor at the University of Houston, a New York Times bestseller. Uh, I, I first encountered her with a TED Talk on vulnerability and shame. This is absolutely brilliant. Uh, and, and until this week, I didn't know anything about her, her faith commitment or background or, or any of that, but I, I caught an interview in which she shares with her at, at a moment of, of pain in her life, really at a, at a, a, part, a point of a midlife crisis, so to speak. That's what she refers to it as. Uh, she subsequently uh, returns to, to faith in Christ. Um, but let me let her uh, tell us about it. And, you know, it's interesting because my, my return to faith was definitely around that breakdown. That's when I went, you know, but I went for the wrong reasons. I really went because I'm like, this, har- this is hard and this hurts. And in all the midlife unraveling books, they say go back to church. That's what everybody does. So I went back to church thinking that it would be like um, an epidural, like it would take the pain away. Like I would just replace research with church. You know, and then church would make the pain go away. And then, it, you know, I write, all, I write in this book I'm working on right now that it was, you know, faith in church was not an epidural for, for me at all. It was like a midwife who just stood next to me saying, push. It's supposed to hurt a little bit, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so I, it, it was a completely new experience going back. I thought faith would say, I'll take away the pain and discomfort. But what it ended up saying is, I'll sit with you in it. And I didn't ever, I never thought until I found it that that would be enough. But it's perfect. You know, it's just, I don't feel alone in it anymore. You know, and I don't feel like I did growing up where it was a lot of, you know, I went to Catholic school in New Orleans and it was mostly like magical thinking. You know, like it was more like there's a reason for everything. If something tragic happens, it was supposed to happen. And I had a mom who was really, you know, very Jungian, very, like, we had a a horrible loss in our neighborhood growing up, and a woman died. And her son was, er, her son was killed in an accident in her home. And then she was diagnosed with cancer shortly thereafter. And at the funeral, they said something when the little boy died, I think he was a toddler, said something like, and I was, maybe it was in upper elementary school, said, this is not a time to grieve. Um, that's selfish. This is a time to celebrate because, you know, this child with God. And I, I was just, that just.
me off. I just couldn't even make sense of that. And then on the way home, my mom said, I just want to be really clear with you that this is not a time to celebrate, that if you're sad, that's okay. And then she said, and I get really emotional thank you for talking about it. She said, because be assured that God is grieving today too. You know, and I was like, huh? She goes, God's weeping too. And I was like, well, that changes everything. You know, and so I just think for me, yeah, it's just about being with you. Love that. I especially love the, the metaphor that she started with, um, if, you, if, you, if you caught it, right? She talks about you know, coming to, to church or, or to faith or to, to Jesus, uh, looking for an epidural to numb the pain. But what she got instead was a midwife who sat by her and said, push, it's going to hurt. Man, I, I love that, that imagery because that's, I mean, that, that's our faith. That's life with Jesus, and that is what Habakkuk is about. And yet, even so, I'm surprised at how Habakkuk ends. I mean, we heard the, the words a, a minute ago, but I mean, think about what we've, we've seen these last couple of weeks. We, we've seen Habakkuk cry out to God in his sorrow and his anger at a world so broken. And we have puzzled with him over a God who allows such, such terrible things to happen, and we've left him bracing himself for the worst. And yet joy is possible. And we've learned to, together that sometimes anger is the right response, and, and that there are times in our lives when there are no satisfying answers to our many questions, and that sometimes from our perspective, God seems eternally slow. And yet joy is possible. Like a woman in labor, and it's a common metaphor in scripture, I'm told that it hurts. I don't know much about it personally. <laughs> but even, even there, right, it's, it's a, I think the reason it's such a common metaphor in scripture and why even Brene picks up on it, I mean, it, it's suffering mingled with anticipation, right? That there's, there's hope that the, the suffering will not last forever and that in the end, maybe, just, just maybe, it'll be worth it. And even then, joy is possible. And yet Habakkuk, I mean, think about what he's experiencing. I mean, sure, we say it's possible, but is it possible for us? I mean, is it even right for us to hope for it? Or for Habakkuk to, to hope for it. I mean, think about it. He is about to see his people destroyed, enslaved, imprisoned, tortured, raped, murdered, the whole, the whole bit. Is it even right to hope for joy? Is it right for us? We see war and terrorism and loneliness and depression and, and violence against uh, the oppressed. Suicide. And yet Habakkuk began with these words. He said, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? And then he ends with these. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Manic depression or resilient faith on the next Dr. Phil, right? And what, what changed for Habakkuk? I mean, certainly not his circumstances. I mean, not, not in the least. In fact, we watched his circumstances go from bad to worse. 
How does he get to this place of joy? And how do we get there? Well, there are no silver bullets, I can assure you. If you're looking for an epidural, we don't sell those here. And I can, I can tell you from my own experience, um, just, just in my own, in own small way, right? I, I've shared with you before, I think I have probably all of, all of my life and probably will to some extent all of my life struggle with a, just a, like mild depression, whatever, whatever you want to call it. And so I, I can tell you, at least from my own experience, there are no quick fixes or easy answers when we talk about this. And yet God teaches us through his prophet, Habakkuk, that even so, joy is possible. It's possible when we recognize how broken our world really is. It's possible when we retell the story with expectation. And it's possible when we choose the Savior who fights for us. And so as we prepare to, to jump into this last chapter of Habakkuk, let's, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. We, we need help. God, let's pray. God, we, I need your help. God, we long for joy. I think all of us here long for it. And so often it feels so out of reach. And so God, I pray that you would speak. Speak to me. Change me. God, give me joy through your presence. God, I pray that that would um, permeate all of us, even in the midst of really difficult things. God, you have to do this work in us. We can't do it on our own. And so we pray that you would do that in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so first off, joy is possible when we begin by recognizing how broken our world really is. Now, if, if you're newer to Christianity, um, maybe, your, maybe your perception of Christians is that we're a bit, you know, blind faith, uh, Pollyanna, pie in the sky, uh, maybe even sort of, you know, cliche driven. And, and honestly, sadly, some of us are exactly that, okay? But not Habakkuk. I, I mean, with, with Habakkuk, he, he knows how bad it is, and he knows that it is about to get a whole lot worse, and he's under no delusion that somehow it's all just going to be okay. I mean, that, that's really what chapters 1 and 2 were about, where we were these last couple of weeks. And now we're in chapter 3, and all of chapter 3 is this, this prayer. Uh, it's a song, really, um, a song of prayer, or however you want to look at it, back to God of this sort of magnificent picture of joy. And yet never once does he simply swallow his pain. I mean, in fact, right before the, the climax of, of the song, the prayer, it kind of builds to this, this great crescendo. And did you hear what he said? Look, look at verse 16. Right, right before this crescendo, he, he says, I, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. I mean, he, he is physically sick with grief and with fear. And yet I will wait patiently, he says. Yet I will rejoice. Listen, the first step to experiencing joy in a world so broken is to be honest about it. I mean, faith doesn't pretend that everything's okay when it's not. That's not who we are. That's not what faith does. Faith confronts the brutal facts and yet somehow remains hopeful continues to grab on. Let me give an example of this. Uh, it's in one of my uh, favorite leadership books, Good to Great. 
Uh, Jim Collins calls it the, the Stockdale Paradox. And there's a section of the book, some of you have read it, I'm sure, uh, if you're familiar with it, The Stockdale Paradox, he, he interviews this guy, Admiral James Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war in one of the worst POW camps in Vietnam. And he was imprisoned there for eight years, he was tortured more than 20 times, uh, and never knew if he would ever get out, right? And so he, he Collins asked him, you know, how did you, how did you make it, right? Because he did, he did get out, how? How did that happen? And listen to what he says, he said, I never lost faith and the end of the story. Who didn't make it? Collins asked him. What, how he responds is so fascinating to me. He kind of, you know, pulled back and said, well, you know, that's actually a really easy question. Who didn't make it? It was the optimists. It, it was the people who said, you know, we'll be out by Christmas. Surely we'll be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come and go. And then they'd say, Easter, we'll definitely be out by Easter. And that'd come and go. And then they'd say Thanksgiving. And then back to Christmas. And, and he concludes, he just summarizes. He says, they, they just, they died of a broken heart. And then he says these, these words. These are so important. He says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. That's the faith of Habakkuk. That's the, the faith that might possibly be able to lead to joy. So are you willing to confront the brutal facts? I mean, of, of whatever it is you're experiencing or facing, or you, you know, look around our, our world, can, can you confront those, the, the brutality that, that we see and we experience? I mean, blind optimism doesn't help anybody. You know, squashing your own pain or the pain of the people around you, it's not, it's not going to benefit anyone. This world is broken and we feel it deeply. And when we try to minimize it, when we refuse to, to co- confront uh, the brutal reality that's before us, uh, we'll end up searching for ways to numb the pain. I mean, it's kind of the inevitable response. We're really good at numbing the pain. We all know our little ways that we do that, don't we? All of us. But Brene Brown, um, the woman we heard from a moment ago, in her, in her book, The Gift of Imperfection, uh, she talks about how if we, if we numb the pain, the reality is we numb everything. You can't just sort of selectively numb different parts of our lives. If we numb pain, we numb joy, and, and we, we lose it. And she, you know, are, we, are we looking for an epidural or a midwife? But the reality is for, for us, longing to be faithful, we don't deny pain. We don't detach from it. The faithful name their pain. They bring it to God and others. And lament, just like we've seen here with Habakkuk. Only then might joy be possible. And of course, that can't be enough, right? We begin there, but we can't just sort of wallow there in our pain. L- look what else Habakkuk does. As he, he begins his prayer of joy retelling his story with expectation, retelling God's story with expectation. Look, look how it begins in verse 2 in chapter 3. This is how he starts his prayer. He says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. Because he knows, he knows what we deserve for our rebellion against God. I mean, he, he knows, it's, we broke this world in, in, the, in the first place. That anything that we experience, it's, it's part of that, that consequence of living in a fallen world. 
I mean, whether we, whether we like it or not, whether we can even you know, wrap our minds around it or not, we broke this world in the first place, and we deserve nothing but God's judgment for it. And yet Habakkuk knows that our God, this God, is merciful. And so he pleads for his mercy and wrath. God, remember mercy. And then essentially his prayer, basically what Habakkuk is saying is, God, I've heard how famous you are. I've heard rumors of what you've done, and I tremble thinking about the incredible things that we, our people, have seen. Do it again, God. Do it for us. Do it for me. Let, let us see it once more. Revive this, this work again, he says. And then he goes on for about 13 verses, uh, describing all the ways that he has seen or heard about God coming through on behalf of his people. So he gives lots of different allusions. If, if we were to read through all those, those verses together, he gives it kind of an allusion to the great rescue from, from Egypt, right? That God's people were oppressed and enslaved in Egypt, but God set them free with plagues and uh, pillar of fire and parting of the Red Sea and the, the destruction of the Egyptians. And, and Habakkuk talks about the fact that this God, our God, he, he is better than any of the other gods. Like he, he's over all, all of the idols, that there's nothing that can possibly compare to him. And he kind of builds and he says, this God, our God, he can, he can make the oceans roar. He can make the mountains writhe. He can make the sun stand still. Do it again, God. I mean, Habakkuk, he, he knows his story. And he reminds himself as he prays, right, of, of his story. And he writes it down to, to be able to retell it to the people around him. And he asks God to revive it again. Do it once more. And even in the retelling, joy is possible. One commentator writes, Remembering the past gives an anchor to the present while a faithful wait for the future. So ask yourself, whose story are you really telling? Like, whose, whose story is it that you're, you're focused on? I mean, we're always telling ourselves stories, aren't we? It's just part of being, being a human. Whether you realize it or not, we're always telling ourselves the story of who we are, the story of what's going on in our lives, in our world. I mean, at the end of the day, there's no one in your life more influential than you are because you're always talking to yourself, right? Uh, the voice in our brain, it, it never stops. And, and so what is that voice telling you? Who, whose story is it reminding you of? And maybe another way of asking this would be, um, who's the hero of your story? you know, the star, right? Who, who at the end of the day is everything sort of circled around? Me, of course. And in an individualistic culture like ours, I mean, who else would it be about but me? But, but the reality is, if, if I'm my own hero, right, if, if the story's about me, uh, then it's impossible for me to, to see beyond myself or to, to get a glimpse even of, of the bigger picture, if yours is the only story you're telling, your faith will ultimately be in you. And your joy will rest no further than the end of your own nose. And yet we are part of a bigger story. A much grander narrative than our own small existence. And certainly, not only can we retell the stories of God's faithfulness in our own lives, and maybe that's a place to begin. 
I mean, as, as you think about the, the past, what, is, what has God done in your life? How, how did you first encounter him? Uh, how has he answered prayers in your life? What are the rumors of his faithfulness that you've seen in you? But, but don't stop there. Because right, our, our story is bigger than that. And so look around you. Look at the people in your community group. Maybe friends or family here at your church. What do you see God doing there? That's, that's also part of our story. But don't, don't stop there. Our story is bigger than that. I mean, look, look at Habakkuk's story. That's, that's our story as well. That if you're a Christian, you've been grafted into the people of God throughout all of history. And so the parting of the Red Sea, that's, that's our story. God, God feeding his people in the desert, giving them water, that was for us. But don't, don't stop there. Because we know even more of the story than Habakkuk did, don't we? I mean, God has proven his love for us in this. Christ died for us. And, and he defeated the grave, walked out of death on our behalf, ensuring that no pain no regret, no fear, no death would ever have to have the last word in our stories. Tell that story. Tell it often. Remind yourself of it and ask God to, to do it again. I mean, that's, that's the power of stories, isn't it? I mean, I, I love stories. Uh, whether it's a, a book or a movie or even just, you know, a good storyteller that you can sit around and, and listen to. I love, I love a good story. One of my favorite things to do is to, to read uh, good stories to my kids, um, to, to be a part of that. I, I decided couple years ago that they're old enough. I'm not reading any of their books anymore. I mean, good grief. I mean, how many times can you do it, right? I just said, nope, we're done with that. We're only reading what I want to read, and you guys can come with if you want. Uh, I'm going to read out loud. If you want to listen, if you want to sit, let's do it. Um, And honestly, it's been great because it's so fun to watch them, they're five and seven, get lost in a good story, right? To, To feel themselves in the adventure, like all three of us there, you know, sitting on the couch together. And, and we do, we, we inevitably identify uh, with a good story. And we, we see ourselves in there. In fact, I was uh, reading an article a couple weeks ago in the Harvard Business Review, because um, I just can't get enough of the Harvard Business Review. Um, I'm that smart. That's what I read. <laughs> Uh, no, you know better than that. Somebody sent me an article, uh, but I did, I did understand most of it. Um, that's an exaggeration. I understood enough of it. Um, but basically, it was an article. It's really fascinating about um, what our brain does when we engage in stories. Uh, and so there are, you know, the study of neurology is just sort of uh, coming alive, right, in so many ways. All the things that we're learning, how the brain works and chemicals and, and all those, you know, crazy, ridiculous, amazing things. Uh, and the story was talking about how um, when we engage in stories, like powerful stories, uh, we hear them and we, we sit in them. Uh, the brain actually re- releases a hormone called oxytocin, uh, which produces uh, a feeling of community, like togetherness. Uh, and well-being as well, uh, and even a sensation of trust. It's the, one of the same hormones that a, a mother, her brain releases when she's nursing an infant. And people, we are hardwired for stories. I mean, this isn't just a good idea. This is how we're designed, how we're created. When we engage in these stories and when we tell ourselves these stories over and over again, something happens in us and just a little bit more ability to trust is formed. And just maybe, just maybe there'll be joy. Retell his story, tell it often, and 
tell it with expectation. God, do it again. Not just in the past, not just rumors that we get to hear about or, or read about. God, do it again and do it for me and do it in my life so we can, we can see it. And joy, it's not inevitable. Good grief, no. But it is possible. And so joy is possible when we recognize how broken our world really is. It's possible when we retell the story with expectation. And it's possible when we choose the Savior who fights for us. Because there's always a choice, right? It just always is, right? This book doesn't, very, very rarely doesn't, doesn't leave us without, without a choice. And, and for the Babylonians, they made their choice pretty easily. Uh, so that's the kind of the, if you weren't here these last couple weeks, that's sort of the bad guy in this story. The, the wicked Babylonians are coming to destroy Habakkuk and his, and his people. And Habakkuk told us, right, they made their choice. Uh, chapter 1, verse 11, uh, Habakkuk said that, uh, referred to them as guilty men whose strength is their God. That's, that's who their God was. But I love how Habakkuk reverses it here at the end. He says, God the Lord is my strength. Not my strength is my God, but my God is my strength. And, and literally, the, the word there in the Hebrew is uh, the word for army. God is my army. God is the one who fights for me. He is the one who keeps me safe. He is the one who will protect me, even when everything else in my life falls apart. And, and verse, verse 13, for example, Habakkuk says, You, God, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. Our God fights for his people, never against us, but always for us. And we know the lengths that he went for us. I mean, even as we get close to, to Advent, right, and the anticipation and the r- reminder that our God, the lengths he came, right, he came here for us, that he gave his life for us. He died the, the death that, that you and I deserved, but he conquered that grave. And so the suffering that you and I ought to have received, he has taken for us. And he offers us life, and yet, in the midst of my brokenness, I mean, I, I look for just about anything else, for joy and security, for strength. I mean, don't you? Where are you looking? I mean, the options are endless, aren't they? Maybe a way of looking at it is, what do, you, what do you expect to keep you safe? I mean, if only the doctors say that. If only my bank account gets to... Yay, much. Uh, if, only, if only my kids make these choices, and believe me, I, I get this. This, is, this stuff is real for me. This is what I deal with. But if that's where our joy rests, and we just end up trusting our own ability to clean up our own messes. And trouble is coming. Our circumstances so often fight against us. Only this God fights for us. And, and when we choose him, I mean, I'm just, I'm so struck by that in this, in this story. Uh, not, not in a, at least I hope not, not, I don't think I'm naive enough to say that all you have to do is just choose joy and be fine and, right, that's the end of the sermon is choose joy and we'll all go and have a good turkey. Um, I don't, I don't think so, right? We, we know better than that. It's not, it's not as, as easy as all that. We cannot simply choose it, and yet we can choose who it is we're going to trust, can't we? And, and look, at, look at Habakkuk's last words. I mean, we know nothing else about him or his experience, but what he writes here for us, we don't know if he lived through the terrible things that happened or if he died brutally like so many others. But look, 
Look what he writes. A very clear decision. He says, verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor food, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. What he's saying is even if we have nothing to eat, even if our economy completely collapses and people are literally starving to death, that's what he's saying. Even if everything falls apart, and for us, I don't, I mean, even if my wife never forgives me, even if I never get that promotion, even if I never have kids or my kids do that, right? Or even if, even if depression is always part of my story or, or loneliness or infertility or, or whatever it is, even so, look, look what he says in verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet steady. That's the idea there, like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. It's amazing, isn't it? That is faith. That is joy, and that, that is what I want. Okay, so Nathan, are you just saying that if we do these three things, you know, check them off the list, then we'll have joy, and life will be easy and happy and, and fine. No, come on. Are you still looking for that epidural? We don't, we don't have those. Sorry. It's just, it's just not, it's not that easy for us, and yet joy is possible. Miroslav Volf, I mentioned him last week. He currently serves as the uh, founding director of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. And they're in the midst of this long study on joy and faith and how it relates and what even is joy. And if you Google it, it's pretty, pretty fascinating research that they're uh, working through. Um, but I love in one of, one of his more recent articles on this subject, he talks about how we tend to think that, that joy is an all-or-nothing affair. Um, that we either have it or we don't. And if we do have it, it you know, um, pushes everything off, everything else, any other emotion or, or circumstantial feeling or any, any of that, that, that. It's just sort of joy. And he just talks about that's just simply not true. I mean, it's, not the, it's not the story that we find here in, in Scripture. It's not the story of our own experiences. And it's not, it's not what they're finding in their research. Joy always, at least almost always, comes with pain, doesn't it? With heartache in the midst of this world, the world is broken as ours. Let me, let me give an example of this. There's a great example uh, in Harry Potter. Uh, and Harry Potter is one of those, it's just one of those great stories of good versus evil and good triumphing over evil. Um, and yes, it's, it's fantasy, right? But it's, it's our story. Uh, and it tells the truth about the world in which we live. And like all true stories, Harry's tale is one of suffering and lasting joy, right, intermixed together. And there's this, this scene in the first book when, when Harry gets a glimpse of his parents. And if you don't know the story, his parents were, were murdered tragically when he was uh, just a baby, and he never got the chance to experience them at all, to, to see them, to know them, to know their, their love and their, their kindness as mom and dad towards a, a child. And honestly, the grief is raw, and it carries out throughout the entire uh, seven-book series. It's always, it's always there for Harry. He never, he never sheds it. But, but there's this moment in the first book when he's given a glimpse, you know, mystically, magically through this, this mirror um, of, of his parents seemingly alive looking back at him. And l- listen to what it says. They just looked at him smiling, his parents. 
Harry was looking at his family for the first time in his life. The potters smiled and waved at Harry, and he stared hungrily back at them, his hands pressed flat against the glass as though he was hoping to fall right through it and reach them. He had a powerful kind of ache inside of him, half joy, half terrible sadness. Friends, that's, that's our story. Because I don't, I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've experienced, what, what your background is or what you, what you believe. All of us have deep within us a powerful kind of ache, don't we? We know, we know things aren't right. We know we're not right. We know our world isn't right, and we feel it deeply. And like, like Habakkuk, like Harry, we ache for a world that should be better than this. And, and I feel it, right? We, we almost get to sort of peer in like, like Harry, looking through the glass, hands pressed, just hoping that we could, we could fall through and experience life as we were designed for, life as we were actually created for. We feel that gap. And until that time, until the time when our God makes it right through Jesus as he promises to do, half joy, half terrible sadness, and yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will take joy in the God of our salvation, the Lord our God. He is our strength. Let's pray. God, you're going to have to do this work in us. God, we've all tried. Tried so many different ways to add meaning or joy or satisfaction or even security or whatever it is to my life. God, I, I pray that we would turn together to you. God, that you would forgive us as you promised to through your son, that we would continue to, to come to you for rescue and that you would do that work in us and that we would know together as your people that in the midst of it, we are never alone. That you have never abandoned us. And God, even if it is mingled with terrible sadness, and the world is broken as it ours, it's, it's going to happen. God, would you give us joy? Give us hope in you and comfort us when we feel alone.